Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome. Thank you for joining me for the next few minutes. We're going to talk about the types of people in hell. And I'm going to explain to you in just a minute what I mean by that. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of The Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. You can run over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab a free copy of that ebook and audiobook to give you some background in the seven laws of life mission that we focus on here at The uh, Mission Driven Mom. Today we're going to spend some time in one of my favorite books. I know I have a lot of favorite books, but this is really a, a family favorite as well. We've all read it multiple times and discuss it regularly. It's called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, and it's an allegory of heaven and hell. So when we talk about the types of people in hell, we're going to talk about the types of people that C.S. Lewis thought was in hell. And we're going to talk about a heaven and hell that I don't know, at least I wasn't exposed to this kind of heaven and hell. And he says specifically in the introduction to the book that he's not trying to start a conversation about what it might really be like. He really wants to present some ideas and he's using this allegory to do that. And it does have a moral lesson. But what I've learned here about the nature of human beings and what really constitutes I don't know, devil-like behavior, should I say, has really been transformed by the way that he presents this uh, material and tells, kind of tells this tale. Now, the kind of hell that we start out in at the beginning of this book is definitely not the kind of hell that I've ever learned about. It's definitely not um, fire and brimstone or torture and pain and anguish. It's a very dull place. It's a very boring place. And um, it took me a little while the first time I read it to really get my mind around what C.S. Lewis was presenting to me as his version of hell. I'll mention as a side note as well, C.S. Lewis spoke often of hell. And he made a comment once in response to people who were constantly criticizing him about talking about hell because they wanted him to be... um, I don't know, a little less concrete about it, I guess. And he said, you know, I wish I could stop talking about hell and I wish that it wasn't important. But the central source about hell and the nature of hell comes from Jesus himself. And that being the case, I think it's something that we ought to keep at the forefront of our minds. So um, I, I really thought that was fascinating. At the beginning of this book, C.S. Lewis kind of is saying, you know, what if it was like this? He places himself in the first person. He's the narrator of the tell. And he's standing in line to get on a bus. And he tells us that he has been walking through town for several hours now. And everything has stayed the same no matter how long he's walked. He says that it's raining. Not a pouring rain, a drizzling, boring, annoying rain. It's evening twilight. And he says it's at that dismal moment when only a few shops have lit up and it's not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. 
He describes it as gray, dingy lodging houses, small tobacconists, um, annoying little bookstores, windowless warehouses. It's really quite a drab place. And, you know, almost the kind of monotony that would drive you crazy if you spent too much time there. And no matter how long he walks, the nature of the place doesn't ever change. It's gray, it's dull, it's quiet, there's no one around. Um, He says later on in describing hell that everyone lives really far apart from each other because they things show up if they just think about them. And so they can think of a new house. And so they're so uh, antagonistic, antagonistic and contentious, they can't ever get along with each other. And so they just imagine themselves a new house and move further and further away from each other. And so the central part of town is essentially deserted because everyone has moved out and away, you know, um, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of miles away. So he's finally found this line of some people who are waiting for a bus to come. And he doesn't say that he's in hell and he doesn't say that he's going to heaven. He just describes the nature of the places. And so we know kind of what it's looking like, where he is. And then he starts in, and I don't know on which reading, because I've read this many times, I don't remember on which reading that I really started to look at this first chapter differently. But at some point, it it occurred to me that as he's describing this line of people, he's actually describing what they're like. And it just hit me, these are the kinds of people he thinks would be in hell. And they're definitely not the kind of people that I had I had ever imagined being in hell. And so I wanted to share this with you because it says so much about what really is wrong with us, what really is, we don't use this word often, but what really is kind of evil within us, if if exaggerated and brought to its uh, magnified to its greatest degree. And it's a great checkpoint for me. I find myself um, shying away more and more from, from these behaviors that he outlines because I had never seen them as being so destructive. You know, he's saying, They're in hell. These behaviors, these attitudes, these ways of being that he describes have landed people in hell. And it's almost like um, that, you know, that that self-made hell hell that, that, that we can make for ourselves, even in this life, with the kind of behavior we adopt. And of course, it's these many of these attitudes and mindsets are addressed specifically in the MDM Academy for that reason, because Um, It became very clear to me that there was a lot of truth in what C.S. Lewis is saying about what really gets us into trouble and trips us up. And it's often not our greatest vices. It can be. um, It can be those addictions that spin uh, really out of control. But it's these kinds of behaviors that I think get us us to that point um, and really, really condemn us. And I'll talk later after I've kind of gone through these people, these types of people in hell, what they kind of have in common. So he's he's at the bus stop and, he, and he's in line and he says, he was kind of 
concerned about the length of the line and about his ability to actually get onto the bus when it got there. And so he had a stroke of luck because there was a woman, he calls her waspish, (laughs) standing ahead of him in line with a man who seemed to be with her. She says, very well then, I won't go at all so there, and left the line. The man responds to her, pray don't imagine, he said in a very dignified voice, that I care about going in the least. I've only been trying to please you for peace sake. My own feelings are of course, a matter of no importance. I quite understand that. And, and so here we have the first person, or maybe the first couple, who steps out of line voluntarily. And what we find is a man who is very codependent, who is a martyr, and who is very steeped in blame. Everything's his wife's fault. He doesn't have any feelings of his own. She doesn't care about him. And he uses his martyr attitude to get out of making decisions. I mean, he doesn't have to make a decision about getting in line because he can just be a martyr. And of course, we've talked about this in previous podcasts. Making decisions is hard. It's what we do out of love and because we care and we're taking responsibility. So he uh, blames her. They step out of line. And uh, C.S. Lewis, as the narrator says, oh, good. Okay, so I've gained two more places. Now next in line was a very short man with a scowl who glanced at me with an expression of extreme disfavor and observed rather unnecessarily loudly to the man behind him or in front of him, I guess. This sort of thing really makes one think twice about going at all. So he's complaining about what he sees around him to the man in front of him. And the man in front of him says, what sort of thing? Growled the other, a big beefy person. Well, said the short man, this is hardly the sort of society I'm used to as a matter of fact. Huh, said the big man, and then added with a glance at me, don't you stand any sauce from him, mister. You're not afraid of him, are you? Then seeing I made no move, He rounded suddenly on the short man and said, Not good enough for you, aren't we? Like your lip. Next moment, he had fetched the short one on the side of the face and sent him sprawling into the gutter. So here we have the next two types of people. First, we have the very proud individual who's just too good for everybody else. He can't be bothered with their, um, I don't know, ignorance or poverty or whatever it is that's making him feel like he's better than everybody else. And as he expresses his pride and uh, superiority, the next type of person who is ruled by his passions uh, punches him in the face and knocks him out. <laughs> so not doesn't completely knock him out, but pushes him into the gutter. And so he's violent, he's aggressive, he's ruled by his passions. And the truth is he's probably the kind of man that would just be gushing with love in good circumstances, but he's mad. He doesn't have any self-discipline and he hits the other man in the jaw. And the short man quickly gets to his uh, feet and limps away from the line. And it's interesting because the big man says to everybody around him when he knocks the guy over, let him lay, let him lay. I'm a plain man. That's what I am. And I got to have my rights, same as anyone else. See, 
So that's the kind of man uh, that he is. He closes up to the next uh, in the line and he sees two young people in front of him. This is what he says about them. They were both so trousered, slender, giggly, and falsetto that I could not be sure of the sex of either, but it was clear that each for the moment preferred the other to the chance of a place on the bus. Now, of course, we know as the reader that the bus is going to heaven and they prefer each other to heaven, to God, to anything above and beyond themselves. And they're pretty kind of androgynous and don't exist much beyond their feeling for each other. So they are definitely other centered and not God centered. And they just wander out of line because they don't care about anything else but each other. Next, he hears a female voice whining. We shall never all get in. And she's losing faith. She's about to leave the line. And then another type wanders up and says to her, change places with you for five, Bob lady. As he does this, um, Lewis says, I heard the clink of money and then a scream in the female voice mixed with roars of laughter from the rest of the crowd. So what's just happened is that he's cheated her. He's pretended he was going to pay her. And then he stole the money back and she screamed and it made everyone in the in the line laugh. So here's a couple other types of people. First, the woman who's fatalistic and negative and complaining and can't see the good in the situation or be patient. And the next type is the man who's a scammer, dishonest manipulator in it for himself. And then of course, um, there's no natural feeling in the rest of those in line. They don't have empathy for someone who's genuinely be, been cheated. They laugh about it. So before long, he's made his way much closer to the bus and he's starting to get excited that he's probably going to make it on. And the bus shows up. A wonderful vehicle blazing with golden light, heraldically colored. The driver himself seemed full of light as he used only one hand to drive with. The other he waved before his face as if to fan away the greasy steam of the rain. A growl went up from the queue as he came in sight. And then someone says, and he's our next character, looks as if he had a good time of it, eh? He's talking about the driver. Bloody pleased with himself, I bet. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us? Who does he imagine he is? All that gilding and purple? I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of the money on their house property down here? Goodness, I'd like to give him an earful. Then C.S. Lewis pipes in again. I could see nothing in the countenance of the driver. To justify all this, unless it were that he had a look of authority and, is see and seemed intent on carrying out his job. So this eighth type of person in hell is full of jealousy. He can't see the good in the driver. He can't see what he's actually trying to accomplish because he's so jealous of his glory and grandeur and natural authority. Then, as you can imagine, they all fought like hens to get on board the bus, even though there was plenty of room for us all, Lewis said. So they're aggressive and, of course, selfish, only thinking of themselves. 
He was the last to get on. The bus was only half full. He says he selected a seat at the back, well away from all the others, and yet someone managed to come and take a seat by him. Now, this young man um, (laughs) begins um, to complain about hell, that there isn't enough intellectual life there, that the people um, are are kind of waking up. And he goes on to describe his childhood. He says, uh, this is how Lewis described it. He appeared to be a singularly ill-used man. His parents had never appreciated him, and none of the five schools at which he had been educated seemed to have made any provision for a talent and temperament such as his. To make matters worse, he had been exactly the sort of boy in whose case the examination system works out with the maximum unfairness and absurdity. It was not until he reached the university that he began to recognize that all these injustices did not come by chance, but were the inevitable results of our economic system. So he's the ultimate victim. Nothing is his fault. (laughs) He has been ill-used by everyone from birth. His life is the culminating effect of everybody else not seeing how talented he was and intelligent he was and all that he was capable of. And as a result, he um, lived a selfish life and and died and went to hell in, in this instance. So they ride on the bus, take a long trip up to heaven. Um, he runs into a couple more people on the bus, um, that continued. He heard a lot of blaming. It's Salt's fault. It's Nay's fault. It's Josephine's fault. It's the Russian's fault. Um, and then another man comes over and sits by him and starts to tell him, starts in this way. As a matter of fact, between you and me and the wall, it's my job at the moment. What's the trouble about this place? Not that people are quarrelsome. That's only human nature and was always the same, even on Earth. The trouble is they have no needs. So he goes on to explain that he doesn't care about heaven. He doesn't really care about hell either. He plans to go back. But his only reason for going is because he recognizes that the problem in hell that he's going to solve himself is that there's nothing there that's real. That Everyone can have whatever they want just by imagining it. And so he's got to go to heaven and bring something real back so that there's an economic system and a real economic need. So he's definitely um, a a materialist. He's materialistic. It's all about things. It's not about... It's not about the spiritual or the higher. He doesn't want to learn what there is there for him in heaven. He doesn't want to progress. He simply wants to have things. He's definitely a humanist, a relativist, a pragmatist. And and then he meets a progressivist who's also in hell. This man says, excuse me, but I couldn't help overhearing part of your conversation. He's talking about um, this last man that that Lewis was talking to. It's astonishing how these primitive superstitions linger on. I beg your pardon. Oh, bless my soul. There is not a shred of evidence that this twilight is ever going to turn into a night. There has been a revolution of opinion on that in educated circles. I'm surprised you haven't heard of it. All the nightmare fantasies of our ancestors are being swept away. So he goes on to explain that this man is a materialist. He's hunkering for matter. But he says, we, the intellectuals, the spiritualists, look on this spiritual city. And he's talking about hell. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? 
He's talking about how this guy's never going to get anywhere getting something real from heaven and being a materialist. That's not really what they need. They need to transform hell, this spiritual city, for with all its faults, it is spiritual. As a nursery in which the creative functions of man, now freed from the clogs of matter, begin to try their wings. A sublime thought. So these are all the types of people that C.S. Lewis has met in hell and on his way out of hell into heaven. And the rest of the book plays out with many of these individuals entering into heaven and seeing what it's like there and being given the opportunity to progress truly spiritually. And it's interesting to look at, it just, it's so fascinating to look at which of them are willing to look at the truth and make changes in themselves and which of them are not, which of them are so stuck in their own view of things and in their own reality that they can't see what the truth really is. And this progressivist is so fascinating to me. Um, and, and of course, these are the types of people that C.S. Lewis was always battling in his other literature too. So I've read enough of him to see the humor in it. Um, wants to, one wants to reform hell by making it more materialistic and one wants to reform hell by somehow making it more spiritual but of course hell is not to be reformed people are there because of their nature and because of who they've become what we see then in all of these types of people in hell what we see in common is their selfishness in every instance in every one of these stories and situations that C.S. Lewis has presented, the individual can only think of himself. Now, he thinks that sometimes that he's thinking of other people, but he really doesn't want to look at the situation for what it is. He's avoiding reality. He's avoiding looking at the truth straight in the face that he is not only in hell, but he's in hell. And that somehow he got there and that he's going to have to change to get out. Because it's such a painful thought to think that you were the one of the ones that made yourself wind up in hell. And, you know, this is so true in earthly life. This is so true right now. That when we're petty, when we're all of these things, when we're materialistic, when we're more worried about having the newest, best idea when we're other-centered, when we're fatalistic and negative, when we're dishonest, when we're ruled by our passions, when we're codependent and, and a martyr, when we blame, when we're proud, uh, when we're self-righteous, when we're jealous, when we're aggressive, all those are the behaviors that given enough time and given enough food, you know, when fed enough, become the very nature of the person. I mean, these people are probably the better ones in hell because they're at least willing to stand in a line <laughs> to maybe go to heaven. And then a few of them actually got on the bus. Now, of course, it's, it's incredible to see how the opportunity is open to everyone. Anyone in hell can get on a bus and go to heaven. That kind of flies in the face of much traditional Christian doctrine in terms of being able to change and transform after this life. Um, but C.S. Lewis talked about it on, on occasion, and I think it's fascinating because I do think there's a lot of truth 
um, that, that maybe there are more chances than we think there are. But that aside, whether or not that's true um, eternally, it's definitely true now that we are presented with many opportunities to change that we have those um, moments when we see ourselves reflected in the mirror, reflected in the glass in the store window, and we have the chance to see things for what they really are. So these people were at least on the verge enough, at least not evil enough to just settle in miles and miles from town and never go anywhere. They're at least getting on a bus. And a few of them really do change. A few of them really do look at reality in the face and want to be different, which is which is incredible. There's an idea that was presented to me by Scott Peck um, about this idea that people engage, who engage in bad, wrong, selfish behavior long enough can get to a point where he calls them people of the lie. They get to a point where it's virtually impossible for them to see the truth anymore because their lives are so shrouded by lies and predominantly the lies they tell themselves. But before we wind up this podcast, I want to make one more fascinating point from um, The Great Divorce, and then I'll leave you to read it. It's one of several readings, uh, suggested optional readings in level two of the Academy, and we look for principles in it, um, which which is a very awesome thing to do. But I want to explain to you the actual relationship between heaven and hell that Lewis is presenting here, because it also says something about the nature of the people that are um that are in hell he arrives on the bus to heaven and it's not actually heaven it's like a waiting station and you have to traverse mountains you have to make the decision to climb the mountains and there are spirits that have come down from the mountains to greet this bus people that have been specifically sent from the lives earthly lives of these individuals who were in hell to try to get them to come on this journey to heaven with them and so the first thing that he says when he gets on the bus is how large. Let me, let me, I want to read his words of how he describes the difference. We know a little bit about what hell felt like that felt like the, the outskirts of heaven feel like this. The light and coolness that drenched me were like those of summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise. Only there was a certain difference. I had the sense of being in a larger place, perhaps even a larger sort of place than I had ever known before, as if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider than they could be on this little ball of earth. I got, I had got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem an indoor affair. It gave me a feeling of freedom, but also of exposure, possibly of danger, which continued to accompany me through all that followed. So he has this incredibly liberating freeing. It's so big and expansive and gorgeous and, 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 and real. It's so real that it hurts them to walk on the grass because it is real and come to find out the people from hell are not. It feels like diamonds. It feels like glass to them. Everywhere they walk, it's incredibly painful because they've entered realness and hell wasn't real. He says, um, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the omnibus, though beginning some of them to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps. I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent 
fully transparent when they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, ghosts. Man-shaped stains on the brightness of the air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will as you do with the dirt on a window pane. They're not real. And, and that idea that the individuals in hell are just ghosts paints this incredible picture that has just stayed with me and made me just adore this book. Because when we are not who we should be, we become shadows of ourselves. We are not real. We are not the real person we were meant to be when we're petty and jealous and aggressive and ruled by our passions and prideful. That is not who we really are. And this is one of the most incredible things that I'm going to, I'm going to be a spoiler. There's so many incredible stories about those that change and don't. I'm not worried about whether or not you'll read it because I know you will. Um, but I want to do, I want to give this, this last little bit away because it says so much about what's really happening. Lewis, um, it's actually George MacDonald becomes, who, who was an incredible man and, and you ought to look him up, becomes his um, tour guide and they go around together for a little while and they're talking. And at one point he says, that the bus and the people in the bus have been getting larger since they arrived in the outskirts of heaven. And Lewis says, do you mean that hell, all that infinite empty town, is down in some little crack like this? A crack in the ground between the grass blades is what he means. Yes, he answers. All hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world. But it is smaller than one atom of this world, the real world. And he goes on, all loneliness, angers, hatreds, envies, and itchings that it contains, if rolled into one single experience and put into the scale against the least moment of the joy that is felt by the least in heaven, would have no weight that could be registered at all. And so what he's saying here is that those that wind up in hell are the ones that are small and petty and selfish and groveling that are other centered that don't center themselves on truth and principles and God that don't look at something larger than themselves that aren't I think it's telling that Lewis says that although heaven was gorgeous and beautiful and he felt freedom he also felt some fear some because it's it's risky being who you really were meant to be is risky. It's scary. It's bigger than you are now. But you can only become that person by taking those steps. I could not believe it the first time I read the book that the bus came up out of the cracks in the ground because it was smaller than a blade of grass. And that is how you feel when you don't reach your potential, when you look at the negative when you complain, when you're jealous, you feel small because you're acting small. You're acting like a ghost of your real self. Who you really are is strong and competent and talented and capable and responsible and amazing. 
And so as you think about the types of people in hell, and as you spend time in the great divorce with C.S. Lewis, I challenge you to look at the people who change and why they change and how they change and to be on that journey to be the best you, to stay away from being a victim and from being selfish and from being petty and small and to make more of yourself to become who you were really meant to be. Thank you so much for joining me. Make sure to go grab your copy of The Mission Driven Life at themissiondrivenmom.com and I will see you next time.